0: Hello friends. Uh today's message uh based on James chapter 2 verses 8 through 13. Uh, I'm going to call it love the lord and the person in front of you. I decided to start a discount religion. That's what Dogbert said to Dilbert in a cartoon by Scott Adams. And what's discount religion? Well, here's Dogbert's explanation. The tithing would only be 5% and I'd let people sin as much as they wanted. Now, during this exchange, Dilbert is sitting in bed, reading a book, and through it all, he never says a word. It's in the third frame, then, that Dogbert gives his own conclusion when he says, the only problem is that I don't want to spend time with anyone who joined that sort of religion. Now, that sort of sounds sort of like the religion most people already have. It, in fact, in an article a few years ago, USA Today painted a picture of what most Americans believe about who goes to heaven. Most people at least most American religious believers, include most Christians, say eternal life is not exclusively for those who accept Christ as their Savior. Now, of the 65% who held this open view of Heaven's Gates, 80% named at least one non-Christian group, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, atheists, people with no religion, who may also be saved. Now, that survey confirms what we've known for a long time. American churchgoers are nice enough people, but they aren't particularly into the details of theology, especially the part about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Clearly, we've got a lot of what we probably call cafeteria Christians who pick and choose what doctrines they'll believe. When they come to this religious cafeteria, they say things like, well, I'll take a big helping of the love of God, but uh, I don't want any of that stuff about judgment and hell. Or can I get an extra helping of diet discipleship? But I don't want any part of loving difficult people or taking up my cross. I mean, that's just too hard. See, Dog Bird is right about one thing. Discount religion is a pale imitation. I mean, why would you want to hang around with people who just don't want the real thing? In his little epistle, James warns us about discount religion. I mean, talking a good game isn't enough, James is going to tell us. It's what you do that matters. And so in James chapter 2, we come face-to-face with a subtle form of discrimination that shows up in how we treat people who aren't like us. They don't look like us or talk like us. They come from a different background, different social class. They speak a different language. They could be immigrants or refugees. They might be widows or orphans, prisoners, drug addicts. They look shabby. They smell funny. Uh, They aren't church-broken, and for heaven's sakes, they're not even Lutheran, let alone Missouri Synod Lutheran. But the question is, will we love them anyway? And that's the question James wants us to ponder. And if we're going to ditch this discount religion in favor of genuine Christianity, I think we need to rediscover three things James mentions here in chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. And the first thing is this, we need more love. Verses 8 and 9 say, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, what exactly does James mean here by that term, royal law? Well, he's telling us that this command comes with divine authority. He's quoting Leviticus 19.18. He's reminding us that love your neighbor as yourself is not just good advice. It's a command from the king. Now, it probably comes as no surprise to you that there's been a lot of discussion about what it means to be a Christian Christian as America becomes increasingly post-Christian and, in many ways, anti-Christian. I mention this simply to illustrate the huge difference between the worldview of the Bible and the moral standards of society in our 21st century. I mean, for example, I, I believe America would be better off returning to the traditional definition of marriage as between one man and one woman. Now, I will work toward that end. I will speak towards for traditional marriage. I will vote for candidates who pledge to uphold traditional marriage and on and on. But I am under no illusions about the difficulty of that task. I'm also very much aware that these social issues are considered divisive today. I mean, that's true. They are divisive. Sincere Christians disagree on how we should speak about these issues to the larger culture. And that's where James becomes incredibly relevant because no matter what may happen in the political realm, we are still called to love our neighbor, period. Now, the good news is we don't need a Supreme Court decision to do that. I mean, no nation in the world, as far as I know, has ever passed that love your neighbor law. I mean, this takes us entirely out of the realm of politics. Now, in context, James is talking about orphans, widows, and the poor, I mean, no man, no law of man can force us to love them. No law of man can keep us from loving them. Since this is royal law, it cannot be overturned by the Supreme Court. And in verse 9, James explicitly calls favoritism a sin. Now, the Greek word means to regard a face or to judge a face. I mean, some of you may recall when recently one presidential candidate mocked another one by saying, look at that face, would anyone vote for that? Now, that offers a perfect example of the sin James warns us against. And isn't it amazing how these ancient words remain relevant, relevant yet even today in the 21st century? Now, a number of months ago, I was in Angola prison teaching, and while attending evening Bible study led by an inmate pastor, one statement by that teacher that night really stood out and resonated with me. He said something like this, Men, we must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, body, soul, mind, and spirit and the man in front of us. I mean, he went on to talk about who is that man in front of us or to ask it biblically, who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus told a famous story that answers the question. It's in Luke chapter 10. I mean, the question is not who is my neighbor, but rather will I be a neighbor? To my neighbor? That's a much tougher question. You never know when you'll meet a neighbor in your life. See, it starts with simple kindness, it extends to greeting them, it includes welcoming them to your church, it means getting to know them, it could be visiting or driving them to the hospital, it could be sending an encouraging email. It could be physical or financial aid. It may cost you the time you plan to spend elsewhere. It means broadening your circle of friends. It means cracking out of that holy little huddle where you hunker down at your local church. Now, none of this is very easy in part because you are only one person and there's only so much that you can do. I mean, you have 168 hours per week, same as me. Your time, your energy, your resources are limited. We can't get equally involved in every situation. But friends, there's no excuse for not to get involved at all. We must love our neighbor even when it hurts. That's the royal law. I mean, ponder these famous words. They're attributed to the Quakers. They said, I expect to pass through this world but once. Any good, therefore, that I can do or any kindness I can show to any fellow creature, let me do it now. Let me not defer or neglect it, for I shall not pass this way again. Now, here's the second thing I think our text points us to, and that is that we need more honesty. Verses 10, 11. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just this one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now, some of you may remember the name Patrick Morley. This name popped up a number of years ago when the Promise Keepers movement was around. Now, he was once asked, what's the biggest challenge you face? And no doubt the questioner thought about his thought his answer might be something like dealing with people or having to raise so much money or figuring out how to make the hard decisions. But instead, Morley answered it this way. He said, my greatest challenge is always the man in the mirror. If I can only keep him straight, then the rest of my job is not so hard. Now, that strikes me as an honest answer, along with the lines of that great theologian, Pogo, who once said, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Now, we need to be honest, and I'm talking about everybody, even pastors. It's always easier to make excuses, to pass the buck, to blame others for our own problems. But in this case, James wants us to face our own tendency to excuse our sin by saying something like, Well, I'm not such a terrible sinner. I mean, I could be a lot worse. And guess what? That's true. We could be worse. After all, we haven't broken all the Ten Commandments, and that's certainly true for most of us, at least in the literal outward sense. But the Bible says to break that any part of God's law is breaking all of it. I mean, verse 10 of our text is whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. And remember, we can't substitute one sin for another. We can't say, well, I didn't commit adultery, so it's okay if I robbed the bank. I mean, obedience in one area doesn't make up for disobedience in another area. There's no such thing as being a moderate sinner. And if if you're just going to be a moderate sinner, then all you need is a moderate Savior. It's kind of like being a little bit pregnant. Friends, you're either a sinner or not. If you break any part of God's law, it's as if you've broken the whole thing. You can't repair the whole situation by trying to make up for it in other areas. God does not accept that solution. It doesn't matter how good you are, you still stand in need of God's grace. And that's why we need more honesty about our true condition. If we're more honest, we wouldn't make as many excuses, and our lives would be more pleasing to the Lord. But here's the third thing I think this text points to. We need more mercy. Verses 12 and 13, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now I want you to notice that James used three different terms here for the law. He talked about the royal law in verse 8, which points back to the source of the law. He talked about the whole law in verse 10, which points to the extent of the law. And now in verse 12, he talks about the law that gives freedom. That's pointing to the aim of the law. See, when the king tells us to love our neighbor, we can't make excuses and hide behind partial obedience. But when we obey, we discover mercy that delivers us into the day of judgment. Now, someone may object and say, well, I thought sins were all judged when we trusted Jesus. Well, that's true. But we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where we, where what we have done will be evaluated by the Lord. I mean, that's what Second Corinthians 5 tells us. If we want mercy in that day, we must show mercy now. If anyone stumbles over this concept, they should read the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, which Jesus spoke to his own disciples. In that story, the shock was not that the first man refused to forgive the second man. I mean, after all, unforgiveness should never surprise us. People get angry. People hold grudges all the time. Many people live for years locked in a cage of bitterness. The shock of this parable is that the man who had been forgiven so much was unwilling to forgive a man whose debt to him was so much less. And you see, friends, let's, let's be honest. We are like the unforgiving servant. We stand before Almighty God with our sins piled up like a mountain. The mountain is so tall we can't get over it, so deep we can't get under it, so wide we can't go around it. That's every one of us. I mean, our sins are like a $500 million debt we could never pay in our lifetime or a thousand lifetimes. We come as debtors to God and we say, I cannot pay. And that's where God in his mercy says, I forgive all your sins. My son has paid the debt. You owe me nothing. But James says the unmerciful person will receive judgment without mercy. J.B. Phillips, in his translation, says it this way, The man who makes no allowances for others will find none made for him. You see, if I want the Lord to show mercy for me, then I must show mercy to others. But it doesn't start with me. We really ought to say it this way, Because God has shown amazing mercy to me in Jesus, I will show that same amazing mercy to others so that the mercy will be shown to me in the last day when I stand before the Lord. And as I ponder this text, I believe the application of this sermon lies inside each heart. Are we willing to think about our own attitudes? Now, we all come from a culture that gives us a personal history with its own traditions and preferences. That personal biography shapes who I am. Now, along the way, I've become a big believer in the value of travel because it stretches you to look at the world in a new way. For example, it's a long way from a small town in Nebraska where I grew up to the billion-plus people to inhabit India, where I've been privileged to serve for a long time. The cultural difference is greater than the geographic difference. When I first traveled India, I got a look at life vastly different from anything I'd known in America, let alone Seward, Nebraska. I experienced the genuine hospitality of the Indian believers and saw the difficulty they face in living for Christ in a Hindu nation. I didn't understand the language or the culture. The Indian way of doing church is not the same way we do it in the United States. I didn't recognize the songs they sang. I couldn't follow along with the scriptures as they read. And being taller than the average Indian, I stood out in every possible way. But for all of the difficulties and all of the differences, I felt loved and welcomed, exactly as James said it should be in our churches. So the question we need to ask ourselves at this point is something like this. Realizing our own background and culture and heritage and understanding we have our own preferences about how things ought to be done, are we willing to submit those things to the Lord so that we might be set free from the sin of favoritism? That's an awful long question, isn't it? But it really comes down to something quite simple. Will we submit ourselves to the Lord and to his word? If we won't, we have sinned against those who are different from us. And we have sinned against the Lord in whom there is no favoritism at all. But as the biblical narrative reminds us, if we show mercy, as mercy has already been shown to us, then we will receive mercy. That's the wonderful promise of God. But if we judge harshly, if we play favorites, if we look down on those who seem less fortunate or beneath us or not our kind, then we face the harsh judgment of God. Yes, maybe we'll get justice, but we won't be happy about it. But if we have learned mercy through the grace and the kindness of our Lord Jesus, then judgment will be disarmed and we will learn what the Lord meant. We'll learn what the inmate pastor meant when he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your body, mind, soul, and spirit, and the person in front of you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.